makes you truly happy and satisfied? Is it financial security, a loving family or relationship, a beautiful home? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prynne, and welcome to Bible 805. Though most of us want all these things, a beautiful home, financial security, people that love us, as we'll see in our podcast today, these are not what creates true happiness and inner satisfaction and peace. But we won't stop with just being negative. We'll talk about how we can achieve what we really want, and not only that, but what we were created for. Our source for this lesson today is the prophet Haggai, and let's look at him now. Before we jump into Haggai, let's look at where we are on our journey through the Bible. We're nearly at the end of our study of the Old Testament, and you may not have thought if you've been with us since the start of the year that we'd ever get here, but here we are. We have only have three more books to go, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and these three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are what are known as the post-exilic prophets, meaning they were God's teachers to Judah after they returned from the Babylon. Babylonian exile. Now there's actually 16 books of prophecy in the Old Testament and they're divided in this way. 11 of them prophesied before the captivity and those prophets include Amos and Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah and many others. Then Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied during the captivity and then afterwards Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi were the final three prophets that prophesied. Now in the setting of Haggai It's kind of unique in that it's one of the few books in the Bible that there's absolutely no question as to who wrote it or when. It was written by a man named Haggai, a preacher, and it was written in 520 BC. Now let's look at the history surrounding it. About 14 to 16 years earlier, and there is all kinds of different commentators have different different amounts, 14 to 16 years earlier the Jews came back to the land of Israel after their captivity in Babylon. Now God had promised that this would happen way before they even went into captivity and then the command of Cyrus in 2 Chronicles 36.23 where he said, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Now, even though people went into captivity literally moaning and groaning and crying and thinking God had abandoned them, most of them decided to stay in Babylon. Around 50,000 did return, but they were mostly priests and those who were were associated with the temple, plus a number of of poorer people. Sadly, the well-off, many of the leaders stayed behind. Now, the major leaders of the country, both the man that would have been king had they still been a monarchy, and the high priest went with them, but many, many stayed behind. They began to build the temple. They got there, and they built the altar, and they built the foundation, and then they quit. Now there were challenges, there were reasons. The surrounding people, the Samaritans, wanted to help. But if you remember, these are the people that when Israel had been taken into captivity earlier by the Assyrians, they then resettled the land with a mixture of people from all kinds of different nations. So they weren't truly Jewish people. And remember too, they worshipped all kinds of different gods. And so they 
decided, oh, they wanted to come and help do this whatever building, and we don't really knew, know how sincere they were. But the Jewish leaders said, no, you know, we worship the one true God. We we don't want, we don't need your help. And they then became very nasty, very awful. It tells us in Ezra 4 that the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Sadly, it worked. Ezra continues, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, they had problems. Yes, they, people were discouraging them. They were making threats. They were writing back to the king. But think about it. The people had seen God conquer and give victory in much greater problems. They had seen God work to bring them back to the land. They had their leaders. They And not only that, they had a lot of money to build the temple. Money was not a problem. Remember, the king gave them a huge amount of gold and silver that had been taken away during the captivity. And so they had everything they needed for it. But here's what happened. They got distracted. They didn't tell themselves that they were quitting the work because they just didn't want to do it. They didn't just admit, well, we've got other things to do. No, here's what they said. These people say, it tells us in in the first chapter of Haggai, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But they had time for other things. Haggai goes on and he says, But is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? Now let's take a minute and do a little bit of application. That phrase, well, it's not yet time to do the Lord's work. What a common and dangerous excuse it is. Throughout the Bible, different people have used it. The thing that comes to mind right away is when Felix was confronted by the Apostle Paul, and he was preaching to him, and Felix just finally says, um, I'll send for you when there's a more convenient season. You know, I, I don't have time for this right now. He wouldn't flat out turn it down, but he might as well have, because that's that's what it was. And then there's kind of a funny one on uh, sort of putting things off for time. St. Augustine said in his Confessions of St. Augustine, he said, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. In other words, he was kind of messing around and, you know, sleeping with various ladies and really being sexually promiscuous. And he knew it was wrong, and he wanted God to help him get over that but he goes well just not right now let me let me sin a little bit longer now we oftentimes maybe not in as serious of situations as these but we don't want to flagrantly disobey God or tell him that we have absolutely no intention of doing what he wants us to do maybe it's an action maybe it's a habit Maybe it's getting involved in a ministry, whatever it might be. So one of the common things that we do is we lie to ourselves. And we lie to God and we say, well, the timing just isn't right. Or a saying that's popular right now that I just hate it is where they go, well, at this season of life, I don't think I'm able to do whatever God might want me to do. Well, God does not buy into that. Um, He didn't with Haggai. And as we will go along and find out, he doesn't do that with us either. And Haggai then just lands into him and he says, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink 
but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Now, this gets kind of tricky on the application of this because we all need to have discernment in our life to know whether when things are going well, if God's trying to teach us something or if this is just something we need to get through. But if nothing satisfies us, if we're not happy with what we're doing, um, maybe we need to look at it, are we not doing something the Lord wants us to? Now, I'm not talking about being involved in flagrant sin. The Israelites weren't. They God doesn't say anywhere in here that they were sinning, they were doing whatever. They weren't sinning. We not may be doing really good things. There was absolutely nothing wrong with building their own houses and not getting into fights with their neighbors. But they weren't doing what God had called them to do. Now, we'll get back to our personal application in a little bit, but let's look at how God worked with them. He sends Haggai to encourage them and to motivate them. He doesn't just yell at him. He says, now be strong, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is their leader. He's their political leader. He is the one who would have been king. Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then there's this great passage in Zechariah. We're going to be talking about Zechariah more next week, and I'll be repeating this because I, I just I absolutely love this passage. And it says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And he goes on to say, Who dares despise the day of small things? This passage, the thing that I just love about it, is he allowed Zerubbabel to go back to lead the people to lay the foundation of the building. And I would imagine that 16 years later, he was tired. He probably didn't want to start in again. He didn't want to do it. He may have thought, oh, probably somebody younger or somebody else. But God says, no. You started this, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to finish it. And two, where he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, God can energize us because whatever work we do for him, it isn't in our own strength. It's always in his. We might feel little, but we have a big God. And I love, too, that phrase where he says, who dares despise the day of small things. We might seem too weak or too old or too tired or too whatever, but if God calls us to do something, no matter all these things, He can help us to finish them. Let me just repeat that verse. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it.
Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? What an incredible promise. And it came true. It took them four years, four more years, but they got it done. Now, after they did it, then, of course, some people were complaining. They said, oh, well, it just isn't going to be as nice as the old one was, and moan and groan, moan and groan. But Haggai reminds them that the glory of this temple would be greater than the former one, even with all the gold and silver that Solomon's temple had. And the reason is, this is the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ would walk in someday. Little application here, our standards of greatness are often not the same as the Lord's. We might look at one thing and he might have a totally different way of evaluating it. Now, once the work started, um, Haggai continues preaching to them. He says, now give careful thought from this day forward. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all of the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me. But now they have. And so the Lord says, From this day on, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. From now on, from this day, I will bless you. So, now how do we apply this? This is a really challenging, it's a wonderful book. It's a short book. If you haven't read it, read it. It's very encouraging. But how should we apply it? If things aren't going well for us financially, uh, does that mean if we do a little work around the church that everything's going to get better? That if we work hard for God, we will be protected from all hardships? It kind of seems to be what the book teaches, but does it really? Now, this is, this is going to be some really important application here, so listen closely. As always, we really need to look at what is called the whole counsel of God before we get into specific applications and what we can apply in our lives. This is where, again, it is so important to read the entire Bible, to read it in its historical setting, because we need to know the difference between what were specific promises that God gave to certain people at a particular time. For example, this passage that we're just talking about, this is a specific promise and a specific command to the people of God that they were to get busy and build the temple. Now, there is a general principle in that, in that God's commands are always to be a priority in our lives. That's what Haggai teaches us, and sometimes it's been called the Matthew 6.33 of the Old Testament. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be ours. But we need to really discern with what is specifically a promise for a certain people and what is timeless. If we don't do that... A lot of the problems that people have today with trusting God is they don't take time to distinguish between specific historical promises and general principles. They grab promises out of context and then they try to make them apply to their particular situation when God never intended it to be that way. And then they ignore overall timeless commands when their current situation makes them difficult to follow. That's why I constantly, constantly 
encourage you to read the whole Bible to understand how God deals with people in specific situations. Now let's apply this a little bit more. In the Old Testament, the evidence that God gave so that the world would know that they were his people was a very practical and tangible one. In Deuteronomy 27 through 29, God clearly states that if the people do certain things, he will bless them. If they don't, they will suffer consequences. And throughout the months that we've been studying, we've seen that there was a direct tangible correlation between when the people of God obeyed him, he blessed them. When they disobeyed, he disciplined them. That primarily meant a loss of material blessings. And we see this all the way to the end of the Old Testament. One of the most misused verses in the Bible. Now, this isn't to say that it doesn't have general application, and we'll talk about it more when we get to this book, is Malachi 3.10, where it says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there will not be room to receive it. That was given specifically to Israel, to the people there, because of a specific problem that they had in that they were not bringing their tithes and offerings into the Lord's storehouse, literally the Lord's storehouse. Now that isn't to say we shouldn't give, we shouldn't be generous, but you can't take that specific Old Testament promise and apply it to your life just because you write out a check to the church. It just doesn't work that way. Now, if you were obedient in the Old Testament, God blessed you materially. If not, he punished you. But in the New Testament, yes, God still expects us to put him first. In Matthew 6.33, the context of it, he says, why do you worry about clothes? Did not even Solomon in all his splendor? He wasn't dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire, will he not more much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, things are very different in the New Testament. God does not just show that we're living, allow us to show that we're living for him if we're wealthy. It's very, very, very different. In the New Testament, there is no guarantee of earthly blessings if we follow God. In John 16, it says, in this world, you will have tribulation. In Matthew, it talks. It says, Blessed are you if men revile, persecute, say evil against you. And then the Apostle Paul, this incredible passage, he was a man who worked harder, who did more, who did so much for the kingdom of God, wrote the majority of our New Testament. He says, in spite of all that, he says, I've worked harder been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times 
I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Jesus was a homeless preacher, and he died a criminal's death. So, you see, again and again and again in the New Testament, we are not to count earthly prosperity as God's blessing. So how do people know we follow God? Now, we've talked a lot about living for Him in the midst of challenges, but let's get a little bit more specific. It's kind of neat, as I was thinking about this, in Romans 12.1, this is a great shift from Old Testament times. Instead of having to offer sacrifices on the altar and burnt offerings and all that, Today, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not a ritual, not in the temple, not a burnt offering. You could buy that. You could do that without being personally involved. But God says, now, I want your heart. I want all of you. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is how people know that we're different. Are you conformed to the world? Or are you transformed? What does your life show? And I hate to say it, but social media is can be a really highly depressing witness to what's important in your life. I I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but it really discourages me some of the social media that I read from people that I know are believers, and they never, ever, ever mention the Lord. They talk about their hobbies and where they go and what they do and all kinds of things. I know it's really important to them in their spare time, but I don't hear much about Jesus. And just kind of look at your the stuff you put down. What what do you talk about? What's important to you? And more than that, too, there are, the Bible's very clear that there's a number of specific actions that we can do in our life to show that we belong to Jesus. Again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, you've heard it said in olden times, for example, that uh, you're not supposed to kill. But I'm telling you, if you're even angry, you're not supposed to do that. That shouldn't characterize God's people. Jesus calls for an inner purity that expresses itself in our lives. And then, of course, such a wonderful verse that shows how we can demonstrate that we're his disciples is in John 13:35, where it says, By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Now, this comes from John 13, and in this passage, this chapter starts out with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And he said to them, he said, you know, if I, your master and teacher, have done this, you should do likewise. And we talk a lot about how this passage expresses servant leadership. Now, servant leadership isn't just a catchy phrase. It's just not some sort of trippy thing that uh, leaders should do because this is really effective. No, it's not an option. It's not just a nice suggestion. If we are in any kind of leadership, our primary goal should be to serve the people that we lead, to serve our families, to serve others in the church. Nobody is above that. Nobody is a super big deal 
in the kingdom of God. And then, too, we cannot forget the glimpse that Jesus gives us of the final judgment and it just, it just makes me crazy when people, oh, they worry about prophecy and these signs and all this, that, and the other. And when God is so much more concerned that we deal with the needs right in front of us, remember, he says the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It is not an option to care for those in prison for the hungry, for aliens, for strangers, for those in need. And it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say, now you have a right to judge them for how they got there, and maybe they made bad choices. And so, no, we are supposed to care. We are supposed to do all that we can because it shows that we belong to Jesus. And I know some of you are not going to like hearing me say that, and I'm sorry, but that I think is so incredibly important that we care for those less fortunate. We might not be able to do it personally. There are many fantastic organizations. World Vision is one of our favorites where they have all kinds of funds specifically for people who are in different situations. You can always give to a group like that here in Ventura, California. We have the rescue mission. We have, there are lots of things that if we don't have either the time or the will or, or just, just don't know how to personally help people, we can give to some of these organizations. And even the smallest amount can make a huge difference. So how do we make God a priority? We need to look at, at um, you know, what it really means to, to make the kingdom first. Now, is God going to just punish us and zap us if we don't? Or will he bless us with goodies if we do? Now, many people teach that's the case. The challenge is that the New Testament does not teach this one-on-one correspondence with, if you give a certain amount, you get blessings. If you do this, you get blessings. If you don't, you won't. No, it's not that simple. Now, you'll find a lot of health and wealth preachers will promise that, but they're wrong. And And the reason I say they're wrong is because Every single one that I've heard, when they promise these things and they try to support it scripturally, they take verses out of the Old Testament. They quote them completely out of context, out of their historical perspective, out of the way God works with people. So you must be very, very careful. What we need to realize is that blessings or not, we're still commanded to put the kingdom first. What does that mean? The kingdom is where the king reigns, and it's where we do what he wants us to do, whether we are rewarded in this life or not. God is to be our number one focus. It was for the people in Haggai's time. It's for us. Making money to support our families and many of the legitimate concerns of life are important. We need to be diligent, but they aren't number one. What then is the challenge for each of us? We need to ask ourselves, when people look at our lives, what do they see? How would they describe us? What are we building? In every life we're working towards something, we are usually either enlarging the kingdom of God or the kingdom of me. 
of my house, my clothes, my money, my whatever. What is it you spend your time and focus on? What is the legacy of life that you're leaving? Now, you can redirect that at any time. You can spend more time in God's Word with His people, asking what He wants us to do. Now, Please bear with me a minute on this. All the things that God wants us to do. I I really want to emphasize this because this just really struck me as I was putting this lesson together. God doesn't force us to do these things to punish us and to make us live a constricted life and to uh, make us miserable. No, no, no. He wants us to do these things because in serving Him, in serving others, that is what we were created for. And when we do them, we will really be happy and satisfied. There's a lot of current examples I could give, but one of the most powerful ones to me as I look back over my life, many, many years ago, I was alone, I was single, I was terribly, desperately lonely, and I was so tempted to just retreat into myself. I lived in Colorado at the time, and I had the opportunity, though, instead to volunteer at the Dale House. It was a home for troubled kids, um, and they were really troubled. I mean, we had some very severely bad kids there, uh, some that had been accused of terrible, terrible crimes. And, you know, I, I wanted to volunteer, and what I mostly did is I cooked for him. I was always a really good cook and come from German Mennonite family and I know how to cook. And so I spent lots of time in the kitchen making homemade meals, making homemade cookies. I'll never forget the first time that I, I heard that most of the kids in the house had never had homemade cookies growing up. And I thought, oh, how terrible. I'd be a delinquent too if I hadn't had cookies. <laughs> um, but seriously, you know, I, I just threw myself into that. And on the holidays, which were so miserable for me because I, I was alone and I'd really feel sorry for myself, but instead I made parties for the kids and I did special meals and I raised money so they'd get presents and we did all kinds of, of fun things. And instead of me being alone by myself and feeling sorry for myself, I had a family. I had friends. I had the satisfaction of knowing that the work that I was doing was pleasing to the Lord. And that's how it's often been in my life, and I know many of you can attest to this too, that our truest joys come from serving others. Now, how do we, again, how do we know? What, do we need to change whatever? Um, in Hebrews 12, this can help us out. When we're looking at our life, evaluating our life, sometimes the things are a little bit tough. Listen to the words from the message where it says in, in Hebrews 12, In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you to say nothing of what Jesus went through. All that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his child? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's a dis it's the child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave their children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? 
Now, see what he's saying there is if you're going through a tough time, just evaluate. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Get out there. Serve others. Do what you feel that he might ask you to do. If you don't know what to do, ask. Um, The message goes on in Matthew 7. He says, don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? God will let you know what he wants you to do. He may not send a prophet, but he might. But in your heart, you'll know. For the people who would return to the land, the prophet Haggai encouraged them to build the temple. They obeyed, and more than the spiritual blessings, they had God's favor on them and the joy of a task accomplished. For all of us, let's listen to what the Lord wants us to do. Let's ask him, what did you create me to do? What will make me truly happy, truly satisfied in you? And then let's do it and look forward to the true happiness and the peaceful joy of being pleasing to our Lord. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson. They are in downloadable PDF format and lots of other materials at www.bible805.com. Do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out any of them on the Bible and just all the different ones that we're doing. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.